that's what I want the sport to be is the celebration of overcoming. And so many parts of it have become just fear of failure and just beating down to the point where even high level, incredible athletes who do things that, you know, a normal person couldn't even comprehend is, is being done. They feel like they're not good enough or they feel like it was crap or they feel like mm -hmm. they should have done it better. And it's like, there's something about this culture that is sick. There's something in gymnastics that has a disease. And if we're not going to find a way to rip it out, or cure it or do whatever is necessary to change it, it's just going to keep infecting the sport. And I think that it's already gone so far and it's become so normalized that some of the things that cause trauma, people defend as just being tough coaching. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Shift Show, where my number one goal is to bring you the tools, ideas, and the latest science to help you change athletes' lives. My name is Dave Tilly. Today in the podcast, very excited to bring back on Thomas Elder, who many people may remember as had an extremely popular episode where we talked about uh, the morals and the ethics of gymnastics coaching and honestly just gymnastics culture in general about the things that we kind of have grown to accept in our sport as maybe some philosophies or coaching techniques or just the way the, the sport is structured um, and what some of those things may do uh, negatively to impact athletes if we allow them to continue. So obviously in the last 10 years, there has been an enormous amount of cultural change and different approaches to saying, hey, this is not the way we want to do things. We want to learn. We want to do things differently. And that episode produced quite a positive response uh, in terms of attention, but also getting people to think really, really hard about their own lives uh, as a parent, as a coach, as a medical provider, as an athlete, um, but also kind of rethink how we go about what we want the next 10 years to look like and be different than the last 10 years with how we work with athletes, how we coach athletes, everything from the competitive system at lower levels to the elite level, um, and really just taking a big step back and thinking about what do we need to change? What do we need to do? So Tom approached me about wanting to continue the conversation, and I quickly agreed because the topic that we talk about in this podcast is probably even some of the more heavier stuff which is going around, you know, how do we really think about the way that our coaching or our parenting or working as medical providers, how does that impact kids in a negative or positive way? And so we talk a lot about, you know, some of the concepts related to, you know, challenging the way that we do things really, really intensely, challenging the way we think about gymnastics, challenging the way we interact with kids to make sure that we are doing what's best for them. And we also talk quite a bit about how do you go about realistically dealing with something that's not okay. How do you deal with a situation in your gym? How do you deal with a situation, um, you know, with another coach or athlete or parent or something that you don't believe is morally or ethically right? You say someone is acting in a way that's harmful or abusive. What do you do to try to change that, right? And what do you do to take care of yourself also if you're someone who's trying to go through changing your gym's culture or changing maybe the way that you used to coach and now it's different. So this episode, uh, you know, we intentionally try to dig at some really, really uh, challenging hard issues that we feel like need to be talked about more in gymnastics, but it's heavy. You know, it comes with some pretty tough moments and we try our best to keep things light and keep things, you know, dipping between maybe some, some darker, more challenging topics to some more uplifting, more positive concepts, but just kind of be, be understood that this might be a, a tough one to listen to. If you're someone who's going through this yourself or has a history with someone who maybe has, uh, unfortunately some harmful behaviors 
So we, we wanted to make this though, because we wanted to give people some tools, some practical experience, but also kind of like a support system to say like, Hey, if you're going through change yourself, we're behind you. If you're trying to change your gym, you're trying to change your culture. You're trying to change something that's going on. You're doing something really difficult, whether it's dealing with a situation where something isn't going well, you know, you have the support of the gymnastics community because we want the sport to be better. We want to grow. We want to evolve. We want athletes and coaches and everyone to have a really, really great experience. So, um, it's really, really impactful. I think that this is one of the better ones that's ever come out of the podcast and I really enjoyed the conversation with Tom again. So do me a huge, huge, massive favor is please, please share this with your community. Share this with your coaches, the parents, the athlete, anybody involved in gymnastics. It would really mean the world to me if you actually like, you know, paused halfway through the podcast or now even and just sent it to your friends, t- toss it up on social media, whatever you want to do, uh, please just let us know. And then also just rate and review on iTunes or Spotify because that is really the way that we get these messages out to the world. Um, you guys may know that I'm not a huge fan of trying to have like, you know, uh, paid sponsorships or things to pay for this podcast so we can keep it going. I'd rather just keep it organic and just 100% delivering content to help you with it. So the more you share it, the more people get eyeballs on it, the better it becomes because we can then support more episodes where we have these conversations. So I hope you enjoy this wonderful part two episode with Tom Elder. All right, we are good to go. Back for round two. Tom, how are you? Doing all right, Dave. How about yourself? Good. Another uh, early morning podcast for us. You're at home now, not in the gym, which is probably better. <laughs> yeah, it's a little less chalky in here. <laughs> yeah, less. Wi-Fi it's, is probably a little less sketchy too. <laughs> well, you'd be surprised. Um, <laughs> there's still a little bit of chalk, though. It seems to follow me everywhere I go. We had a, uh, a conversation with a couple of my alumni friends about how much chalk a gymnast probably consumes in their lifetime. It's probably going to be pounds, right? It's got to be depressing when you know that number. <laughs> like that That's a statistic I'd be better off not knowing. <laughs> um, yes. So uh, I guess in review, we were talking for the podcast, but first episode was very, uh, very positively supported. I had a lot of really great positive feedback. I think people who were maybe unsure of what they were going to get in that podcast went in and came out the other side uh, equal parts educated but also you know self-reflective which was really good i think we had some really good conversational points back and forth about some tough stuff man some really tough stuff in gymnastics ethically and morally that's going on and i think the more people thought about it the more they resonated with some pieces they went back and listened again and so i i wanted to thank you for the first one and then i wanted to uh and say thank you again for this one because i think as we have planned in the outline we have probably much more important things to talk about and much more kind of heavy or deep things but hopefully in a positive way well first i want to thank you that's it's very high praise you know i i know you've spoken with a lot of very prestigious people in the sport of gymnastics as well as academics and scholars so just to be able to be up here with them, it makes me very happy. This is projects that I've worked on for years, and I finally get to share them with the public. So I'm happy to hear that people are finding it a little bit enlightening, a little ed- educating, and a little challenging at times. But yep. I'm, I'm happy to hear that people are enjoying it. Yeah, I think we, we had mentioned before when we were chatting, but I think a lot of the positive feedback I got was equal parts of some people were... Um, just curious. They were just like, huh, that I've never thought of that perspective. Some people felt like cathartic. They felt like, thank you for somebody else is thinking the way that maybe I'm thinking that this needs to change or this doesn't sit well with me. And then I also think that some people were, you know, came away, like you said, in a little bit disagreement. And I had some follow-up conversations with people who were like, yeah, well, I don't think you see this perspective, or I don't know if you have, you know, these full, you know, arguments kind of understood. And, and as we had mentioned, it's like, we want people to kind of have some of those conversational points, because it's not about me being right, or you being right. It's about opening a dialogue for some of the really complex, gray, murky areas of, of gymnastics culture that we're trying to fix. Yeah. And, and especially when you're talking about like ethics or academic stuff, 
the challenging conversations and I always welcome the the criticism because it's like if if you show that I'm wrong I'm I'm going to be grateful mm. you know and if I present to you an idea that's that's foreign or kind of a little bit threatening it's because it's not necessarily attacking your core beliefs but it's something that's challenging them and forcing you to look at them in a, a way you might not have looked at them in the past and like I had told you a little bit earlier um some of the most educational moments in my life, I walked away from the lecture going like, oh, I hated that guy. Like he was terrible. But then after reflecting on it for a couple of weeks and like thinking it over, maybe going and reading the sources, I'm like, actually, he's got a really good point. And it would pull me out of a position that now I'm grateful because, you know, it changed my perspective in what I think would be a beneficial way. So I always welcome criticism and I always welcome people who disagree with me because it's an opportunity for both people to learn and get a little bit better at what we're doing. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that point about how something is is usually uncomfortable because it challenges your core beliefs or it challenges maybe the way you set up your your thought process for thinking because that for sure is going to happen for a lot of people probably in this episode. I think, you know, to set the picture here, I think it's important to remember that we're trying to have these conversations that are sometimes uncomfortable and challenging because ultimately we all want what's better for the sport. We want what's better for, you know, us as coaches or medical providers or researchers or whoever parents working in the sport. We also want what's best for the kids and the athletes involved in it because the sport's incredible. And it's, it's just a reality that we still have some very, you know, heavy issues to work through and some things that really need to change culturally that we'll talk about. So before we dive into the specifics of the episode, I want people to just kind of take it all in with an open mind first and then kind of let it sink. Don't like, you know, have Instagram up in the comment section, you know, behind while you're listening to the episode, like give it a couple of days to like resonate and like journal on these things before, before we have the snap, snap trigger finger email response. Yeah. Well, we're going to, we're going to build up the talk too much now. Everybody's going to be on the edge of their seat. What are these two about to say? <laughs> no. Um, yeah. So I'll, I'll kind of frame it up this way. So I think um, the way that I was thinking a lot about it in the week leading up to the podcast was, I frame it as we all have a role and a responsibility um, as adults in the sport, whether you're a medical provider, a coach, a parent, a support person, we all have a role and a responsibility to try to really keep the athletes, you know, pursuing learning gymnastics, but at the same time, maximizing their, their wellness, right? Emotionally, physically, mentally, right? We have a responsibility and a duty to the athletes, AKA the kids, right? The majority of these people are just children um, to, to do the best by them that we can. And I think with that in mind, um, there are many, many incredible coaches out there, which I hope I've just, you know, really labored that point in the podcast. There's a lot of incredible coaches, incredible parents, incredible medical providers, um, great gyms, great cultures, amazing positive examples of people that are everything we hope the sport of gymnastics could be. But the reality is, is that there is still a lot of things that really need work. And I think particularly when it comes to um, some, some coaching practices, some ways that maybe parents are pushing the athletes or the way that the, the culture has set up to maybe expect really, really high level things of kids. There's still a lot of kind of elephants in the room and kind of demons swept under the rug that I think we have to tackle. And I think a lot of that comes around some of the beliefs of how we coach, you know, tough coaching, quote unquote, and how we get kids to be high level or just enjoy the sport. Um, and I think that's still what we need to tackle. So Yes, there are things that are out of our control, right? You can't control what parents do. You can't control someone's you know, outside life from gymnastics. I think we talked about a lot in the last episode how you can't really try to be someone's you know, parent. You're, you're their coach and you're their person who's involved. If you're their parent, you can't be their coach as well, right? And there are a lot of things that are out of our control, but ultimately 
I think we all have a role and a responsibility to work in the sport as someone who wants to be an agent of change and evolve the sport. And that requires us looking inward, but also having these really hard conversations. So I guess I'd like to say there is greatness. It is awesome. There's lots of good people, comma. We have a long road <laughs> to still go to make this something that's not so damaging sometimes. And and it, it's been a road that we've been on for a little bit. So people uh, rightly so feel a little fatigued by the conversations, but as professionals and people who pride ourselves with our ability to work with the athletes and develop them, these conversations, although tiring and somewhat exhausting at times, are the absolute most important thing we can do right now. Um, I remember a few years ago, I used to do a little ethics talk at a gymnastics camp I worked at over the summer. And I found it really interesting because it was right when all of the scandals were going on and I was doing like this little chat. It was only about 20 minutes and I couldn't get any coaches to come to it. Um, but then like immediately afterwards, somebody would do um, a Tkachev clinic and it'd be like 30 coaches there. And I'd be like, guys, this is literally in the news, like CNN's reporting on this. So it, it's something that we don't really want to talk about at times, but it's something that we have to talk about because I think we'll show as the podcast goes on later, this is more important than a Tkachev. And it's more important to your gym culture and your athlete's health than knowing proper techniques, teaching gymnastics, like gymnastics is gymnastics, but a lot of these things are lives and people and what kind of life you're setting up for the future. It's like, I taught them how to do a Tkachev well, cause I went to this clinic, but well, you didn't go to the clinic about how to interact with the athletes and maybe a healthier way than you had been in the past. Um, and I hope to kind of illustrate that as mm. we go on. Yeah. Um, I, I also think I want to highlight too, how I think we talk a lot on the podcast and in general about how important it is for obviously the priority being the athletes wellness, right? We're doing so much to try to make the athletes well and be happier and not get as many, you know, collateral pieces of damage along the way. But also I feel strongly that this, this type of work benefits the people who are the adults who are trying to make a positive change, right? So mm -hmm. If you are, and I can speak from experience, a lot of the things that went into making the culture better and improving the way we interacted with the kids, whether it wasn't yelling, not punishing with conditioning, all this kind of stuff, it made me feel better and happier as a person as well. And it made my coworkers and the, the, some of the other coaches that I work with also happier. It made the parents happier. You could make the argument financially. It was a better investment for the, the gym because more kids were staying. So while yes, it is a priority about making the athletes experience better because I feel as though they're the most important. I think it's also really important to remember that it's not just about doing it for somebody else is that if you don't want to be as burnt out at the gym and you don't want to be as miserable and you don't want to have this drudge of a carry yourself to practice and just grind through meat season this really is in your best interest to do it because it's how your own personal you know happiness will probably come along as well mm -hmm. well and i like that you brought all of that up because it kind of illustrates the segue into one of the topics that we wanted to do today which was um stoic philosophy and i i wanted to have a conversation with you about this because i had watched your your video on like gym culture mm -hmm. and and every time I, you start kind of giving your personal philosophy, I've found it to be very stoic. Um, so I know I had reached out and emailed you because I was interested how much research you'd done in the, the philosophy or if you had even heard of it. Because um, in my experience, and, I, and I'll go into kind of what stoicism is in a second, but it's, it meshes very well with gym culture and the way at least a lot of coaches I know kind of think and perceive around the world. Mm. Um, so I was going to ask you, how familiar you are with stoicism as a philosophy of life yeah 
I am um, when I was kind of, and I'm, I'm trying to think back to the exact timeline, but essentially 2013, I came into grad school, started coaching at the gym I was at, and it took, it was a two year downward spiral. As, as I usually tell people, it was like, it was like oblivious to the fact that I had a massive ego and that I really came from being insecure and my own personal life of like family and, you know, girlfriend, boyfriend relationship, stuff like that. Like that was the reason I was kind of being a monster and I was really insecure about my intelligence. So I was coming off very aggressive. So it was a two year downward spiral. And then in 2015, I was like, oh no, like people didn't want to hang out with me. My coworkers didn't like me. And so it was from 15 end of 15 to like 16, I was like way in the rabbit hole of reading everything I possibly could on, you know, personal development, stoic philosophy, um, a little bit more like mental awareness, stuff like that. And then actually, believe it or not, got into a second thing. We'll talk about like cognitive behavioral therapy and more formally trying to deal with my own, you know, my own personal life, my own mental health. So I actually got wrapped up into all of that research and then also like stress neuroendocrinology and what we'll talk about with like childhood experiences. All of that was kind of in the window of like 2000. 14, 15 to like 16. And then obviously as the scandals came, I was like rocket ship upward into trying to be as, as, as educated as I possibly could. So yeah, I have a decent exposure, clearly not as much as you on the academic level, but a, a decent amount. I, I don't know. It sounds like you might. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll find out going forward. So let me just kind of give a little bit of background to your audience because I don't know how much exposure we please, have. Um, please. The most that you'll know about stoicism or stoic is just the colloquial term that people will say, though, like he's very stoic. Um, a lot of the times um, there's words that we'll use to describe people that are actually based in ancient Greek philosophy that most people don't know is based in ancient Greek philosophy, which stoicism is an entire school of Greek philosophy later adopted by the Romans. Um, but then also the word cynic. Like if you've ever heard somebody called a cynic, cynics were a school of philosophy. Um, hedonist is also a school of philosophy. So those would be like Epicureans. Um, Stoic is actually pretty close to how the philosophy was used and practiced. Um, I have the big three up here for any background for somebody who might be interested in going and reading about kind of what they have to say for themselves. And then I'll kind of elaborate. So you have Epictetus, Seneca, and Marcus Aurelius. Marcus Aurelius is the most famous of the Stoics because uh, he was in the movie Gladiator. I don't know if you knew this. He was the uh, emperor at the beginning. He was the good one before the bad one shows up and takes the general's family away. Um, but he wrote a book called The Meditations. And it's a very fun read because you get a very good life philosophy. And just what I was thinking last night is it's, it's really just ancient wisdom in like the most literal sense. It's a uh, uh, Roman emperor who was just living his life being an emperor. And then he'd sit down and he'd journal. And what you're reading is his own thoughts about not just philosophy, but just life in general. He's talking about life lessons taught to him by his family members. Um, what I found most beautiful about his book is it opens with all of the things he learned from other, other people. Um, and they're, they're not, you know, things like, how to lead an empire. It's like, I learned how to be gracious and I learned how to not talk down to people. I learned, and he would credit it. It's like from my uncle, I learned temperance, you know, and it gives you a very grounded, very human read while you're also, I mean, getting into some pretty, pretty deep philosophical ideas from a life philosophy. Um, Stoicism itself isn't exactly a life philosophy. We remember it mostly as one, 
And today you'll find a lot of stuff in like pop culture and like media where they'll, they'll talk about the Stoics, but that generally isn't really Stoic philosophy. It's closer to like an existentialism with like a Stoic twist. Um, like the Stoics were very hardcore people. Um, they were, um, well, I tell a lot of people they're, they're the second most metal philosophy that's ever lived. Um, <laughs> The right behind the Epicureans, but the Stoics believed that emotions were a way to kind of distract you from your rationality. So um, a misconception of Stoics is that they were not emotional people. Like they they taught you to be logical and and kind of like the the image is like Spock from Star Trek. It's like mm. emotions are bad. You don't want those. Um, you just have to be a, a being of pure rationality. And that was not exactly what the Stoics were. They did believe that rationality was a faculty provided to you by the gods. And it was the only one you were given as a human that separated you from a, the animal kingdom. Um, but they didn't see emotions as being fundamentally bad. They saw emotions as being part of the human experience and that to them was incredibly important, but they saw them as being things that can get in the way of mm. your, your experience. So mm. they can cause you to not think rationally and potentially make worse choices. Yeah. And I, uh, I, you popped in, that popped in my mind was the, the pop culture reference was like, like Ryan holiday has become, you know, almost the, uh, vessel of all things stoicism with all his books like ego is the enemy and the life of the daily stoics stuff so i think a lot of people get that from his perspective i'm also very happy you said misconception that i had about stoicism when i was just naively reading and trying to make sense of it was that it was like the absence of emotion that yeah. like these people were robots and that they have no emotions at all and they should just push those to the wayside and i think for a lot of people who maybe follow the stoics and then wrongly apply it is they actually take that into their life where not only should I never have emotions, I'm, I'm trying to mentor people to suppress their emotions, not deal with their emotions, just completely be a robot. And as we've talked about in our last podcast and many other, the whole idea of turning someone into a ghost in a shell robot and just following command gymnastics is clearly a horrible problem that we have that we shouldn't be doing. So I don't want people to think about stoicism as like a, uh, an excuse to be like, well, see, that's what they did. <laughs> a, a better way to think of it is a confrontation with your emotions. Mm -hmm. Like you are looking right at them and you have to learn. This is a skill that you they, you try to develop if you practice. Um, I, I often tell people I, I am a stoic, but I'm just a really bad one. Like I, I can't do it in practice. Like I love it. I like reading it. And I tell people all about it. But then when I live it, I, I'm like, meh. <laughs> um, but it's a confrontation with your emotions. You, you have to look at it and be honest with yourself and be like, why am I reacting this way? Mm. What is my thought process? You know, like, am I really thinking this through or am I just upset? Like, am I angry about something going on? And then mm. I'm, I'm having an emotional reaction to it. Am I sad? Am I insecure? Um, and then you have to ask yourself, is this truly rational? Like, is, is this something that's helping me with what I'm doing? So like, if you're coaching and you get really mad at your kids, you know, maybe you say something you didn't mean to them and or you kind of take it out on the guys um, or the girls and you have to stop and take a second and be like, is this really the right thing? Am I thinking this through or am I just having an emotional response? And I think we're all guilty of that. Um, so it's not that you want to take away the emotions like the anger is there for a reason. You, you want to kind of understand why it's happening to you. And that's part of being a person. 
Mm. You know, like I'm going to have to deal with anger my entire life. So how can I deal with it in a way that's the most beneficial for me and the healthiest for me? And that's the, the stoic approach to emotion. It's not suppressing it or pushing it aside. It's, it's confronting it and trying to find a way how to not necessarily control it, but keep it in the healthiest way that you're going to experience it. I agree. And I think that's something that I hope resonates with a lot of people that where, why we're starting this conversation from stoicism and then we'll get into, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy is there's so many examples that you just talked about when you do something, you react emotionally without kind of checking yourself and it has a negative impact on coaching or as a parent working with a gymnast or even a medical provider who's trying to interact with coaches, right? That's a big one that I kind of deal with is a lot of the work that I did between, you know, reading and then other therapy things like that was trying to have a, a conversation or confront, like you said, emotional reactions to be like, well, what's the root of this? Like, why am I so bothered? Like in the gym, you know, the most common one that comes up is the kids misbehaving and the kids not following their assignments or not putting in work towards their gym or just not really like wanting to do it. It's like a lot of coaches will have an immediate snap action, anger response and just, just yell right before they mm -hmm. think about like, why am I upset? Like, what is bothering me here? What can I do to think this one through? and have a more rational, logical conversation with myself first than with the athlete or something like that. And then in, like I had just mentioned is outside the gym. A lot of coaches, I think, unfortunately, still have outside life things that bleed into their levels of stress inside the gym or bleed into maybe their their unsatisfactory lifestyle they have and they get upset. And I had that too, right? I had, like I mentioned, problems with personal and outside the gym family and um, you know dating relationship type of stuff like that. And then also I was just working too much. I was overworked and I was very burnt out. And that bled into my you know hairpin trigger with some of the the upset you know conversations I had of being yelling or something like that. But those were those were sparks, emotional catalysts for me to be like, oh, I don't like myself right now. I don't like the way that I'm acting around these kids. This, this used to be fun for me, which is why I kind of had that personal journey. Like a lot of people have that too, but that is where we're going with this is like, yes, it seems like, why are we talking about stoicism and all these like esoteric things? But like at the same credits, this is really a foundational for a lot of the things that we deal with in the gym. Well, and I, I do want to say that I, I always love it when you, you talk about your previous struggles with these things, because I find it very inspiring. I love how open and honest you can be. Um, in a way, I'm a little jealous because I'm not very good at confronting myself like that. And I like how open you are because it, it's a little inspiring. And I think that when people see that, they realize it's like, these are things that everybody struggles with, um, especially in the gym. One of the things for Stoic ideas, and I'll, I'll tell, connect this with, with coaching in a second, is this um, ability to look at what you have control over and what you have power over. And this is another one of where emotions kind of play into it, where the Stoics would tell you that anything you can't control happening to you, you just have to treat as if it's meaningless or nothing to you. So like an example is like, it doesn't make sense to cry because it's raining. Like if you're upset because the weather's bad, you have to ask yourself, well, is it the weather that's causing me to upset or is it my expectations of the weather? Like, is it the way I'm thinking about, I'm saying the weather shouldn't be this way and it is this way. And now I'm upset about it. Well, you're expecting the world to just conform to what you want the world to do. Mm. So who's making the mistake here? Um, when I have new coaches that are starting to work with like boys that are like really young, I always tell them right at the beginning, it's much easier if you just expect them to not listen to you and expect them to just bounce around and be crazy and try to jump off things because they're going to do it. And 
you can sit there and you can try to tell them, stop it. Or you can just be like, they're boys. They're going to do this stuff. You do have to settle them down and keep them under control, but it doesn't make sense to get upset. It doesn't Mm -hmm. make sense to be mad at them because it's out of your control how they're going to act. Like you cannot force them to listen. You can't force them to not behave. But at the same time, like you do need them to do what you need them to do. So you can do it in a way where you're not mad at them. You're not upset with them. You're just trying to get them to do what their parents are paying you to do, like trying mm-hmm. to get them to learn gymnastics or just in some cases, just stay on the event they're supposed to be on. Um, and it's it's kind of there where I think stoicism comes into the gymnastics world a lot is you're dealing with the same situation, but you're dealing with it emotionally from a different perspective, right? Like I'm not mad at the kids because they're not listening to me. I'm not upset with them. I expect them to not listen to me or I expect them to make mistakes, I think would be better to say. And when they make a mistake, it doesn't frustrate me because I'm expecting them to do it. And it's fine that they do it because if I'm going to work with little kids, I have to expect them to make mistakes. It doesn't make any sense for me to expect them to be little perfect robots when they come into the gym, because if they were little perfect robots, like what am I doing there? I don't have to be here. Like they're fine. They're going to do everything they're supposed to. No, they're not. And that's why I'm here. So if the kids are, are goofing off or misbehaving, I have to find a way to get them to do what they need to do, but I don't have to be upset about it. Like it's not going to make me angry and I don't have to get frustrated and yell at them. Mm. Um, which is a mistake I see a lot of coaches make. And and it does frustrate people. And it also makes me a little upset for some of the coaches because like you don't really want to live in that environment. Like you don't want to go to work and just be angry every day, Um, which, you know, a lot of times that does happen. And, you know, I'm guilty of it. Like I go in and I'll get very frustrated with them, but then I'll, I'll try to grab myself and like cool down. There'll be moments where like, I'll talk with the kids. I'll just tell them, like, I'm just really upset today, guys. I don't want to take it out on you. But it's like, can we just bring it down a little bit? Because <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah, I sorry. I, I thought uh, it's, it's funny how you're selling these things all together. The combination of my experiences. I mean, I'm happy to share. Thank you for acknowledging that. I appreciate that uh, kind gesture. But I found that it helps other people. It also helps me process, you know, what I'm trying to make my own story to be something that's kind of a, a hopefully an upward journey and not like a woe is me kind of victim mentality. But the things you mentioned, it's, it's funny is the confronting the emotions and the things like control versus not control is, you know, I try to share things in the podcast because I struggled a lot with, you know, being depressed and having some issues with being burnt out and coaching. And I just wasn't happy. You know what I mean? Like, and I think that's ultimately what I want, right? Like, of course I love running a business. It's part of what gives me meaning, but I just generally want to be happy with my work with gymnastics and stuff. But at the same time, I want other people to be happy, right? If I can share an experience that makes other people have an insight of knowledge and then makes them, you know, be happier in the gym. Like that's how I was able to kind of pull myself out of my own kind of situation is by listening to other people and hearing their stories and listening to podcasts and listening to books and going to therapy and stuff like it helps me. So if I have something I can share with them, that's great. But at the same piece of it is like, well, what do you think I'm teaching the athletes when I coach, right? When somebody is falling nine out of 10 times on a skill that they're trying to get, I'm trying to teach the exact same stuff, which is like, Hey, like, don't just get angry and storm around and be upset. Like, let's like exactly what we just talked about. Let's try to think about, okay, I know I'm upset right now. What logically can I do? Is there a technical thing? Is this a fear thing? Do we need some drills? Do we have like a strength issue or a flexibility issue? Like the same kind of 
confrontation of my own emotions that maybe helped me in my personal life and, and kind of be a happier coach are the same things that I'm trying to teach the athletes to not be irrational, right? And what do you sometimes see at a, a, a meet or something like that is someone who maybe doesn't have a great performance and a coach explodes and starts getting upset and yelling and is, well, this isn't going right in the rotation and this and that. Like I've seen some, some coaches just absolutely implode because their athletes didn't perform well. And it's like what the exact kind of thing you need is to be, you know, a, a, a rational there and not too over the top, but back to, again, the things you can control versus what you can't control. That's one of the bigger things that I did pull out of my research and education is like, that's one of the biggest things that I work with athletes and try to teach them for is like, you can't control whether the judge is in a bad mood today. You can't control the event rotation. You can't control the weather. You can't control the traffic on the way to the meet. All you can control is your effort and your attitude right now. And like, yes, things are unfair sometimes and they go, don't go your way. But um, it is up to you to choose how you respond to your own emotions and what you're going to do about that. It's not saying don't be sad, don't be upset, but it's like, well, you know, the, the choice to do, do something about that and work on what you can control versus dwell on, on and ruminate on all the things you can't control. That's like a foundational corner of the way that I inter interact and coach with kids. So all these things are tied in. Mm -hmm. Oh, completely. Um, kind of going back with the happiness thing. Uh, I like that. I like it a lot because I think most people, you know, they're living to be happy for, for me. Um, I've always looked more towards what I would describe as tranquility, like a, a quiet acceptance mm. of if I'm happy today, I might not be happy tomorrow and that's okay. And if I'm sad today, I probably won't be sad tomorrow. And that's also okay. Um, when I'm coaching, I'll try to show that same acceptance of situation as any. It's like, all right, pommel horse isn't going well today. We'll go better tomorrow. You know, it's like we're having a good day. All right. Well, maybe not tomorrow. So it's like you got to take the good days. You got to take the bad days. And it's part of it's part of the experience. And one of the things that a mistake, I think, when I see a lot of coaches is like they expect their athletes to be on all the time. You know, like mm -hmm. every day has got to be a good day. Or if they're a little bit off on a, one skill, they'll get really annoyed. And you're like, you always do this. Like, what's the problem? And it's like, it's just an off day. Like, it's fine. Like, there's no problem if you're going to fall. Like, we'll just take another turn. You mm -hmm. know, it's like, and if I'm upset with you or if I'm angry with you, it's going to change the dynamic of the workout. Like, what are we doing? Are we, are we working out so that we never have a bad day and we never fall? Or are we just trying to see where we take it and see how good we can get? Because, you know, for me, I, I'm not trying to take anybody to the Olympics. You know, I just want kids to enjoy themselves. You know, if you want to do well at a competition, I'll do everything I can to help you. If you just want to hang out at the gym and, and work out, that's fine too. You know, it's kind of more laid back gymnastics, but it's at least in my own experience, it's, it's been pretty effective. Like I've got mm -hmm. a lot of guys that are starting to get pretty good. You know, I've got guys who aren't really going anywhere, but they don't really want to. Like they mm -hmm. they just enjoy being in the gym. And the fact that I have athletes who, who train just because they enjoy being in the gym, I think is an important thing for, for gymnastics because my conversations with a lot of people and like very good athletes who went very far and were very successful, but they said, you know, I hated it. Like I didn't mm -hmm. like being there. I didn't like my coach. I didn't like what I had to do. And for me, I think the sport would become a much healthier place if the best athletes 
were the same as athletes as the ones who enjoyed being in the environment. You know, like I like working out, I like training. And that's not to say that there aren't high level athletes that don't love their coaches and don't love their gyms. Cause there definitely are. Like you've said earlier, there's a lot of great people in the sport. Um, but my conversations with a lot of former gymnasts, you know, it, it's horror stories a lot of times, mm. um, which I think could bring us to our, one of the things you had already mentioned, but I think that we'll talk about. And one of the reasons why I like to use stoicism is because mental health has become a, a pretty big topic in gymnastics. Um, I know Simone at the Olympics really started the conversation. And um, I kind of wanted to show how, how stoic philosophy has kind of worked its way through therapy and through a lot of our, our culture, because what you had talked about, which is cognitive behavioral therapy mm -hmm. um, or CBT, I think you'd probably be a good person to kind of tell the audience a little bit more about it, because sure. I've only experienced it through academic re research. I haven't really gone through it. Yeah, absolutely. I'd, I'd be happy to. And uh, I think I should probably clarify, I'm, I'm happy you mentioned about the happiness thing is I, I agree with you that I think happiness for me is not so much puppies and rainbows and unicorns and like feeling euphoric all the time, which I think yeah. you have those moments, like you said, where you're happy. But I think I agree with you. I always try to view it as like a calm, right? Like yeah. you said, like a, like a, like your poise. And I think that for me, it's like a calm and like the ability to handle life's chaos is the view is the really the view that I take, which is like, I don't think I should be, you know, joyous all the time, but I think I should be okay dealing with the ups, the downs and all the in-betweens. And I think if you can have that mindset of like, yeah, I can, I can deal with the chaos and the adversity of what is thrown at me. And I can probably see, you know, a way to be enjoying some of that process as well. I think that's, that's probably more where I sit because I'll be honest, the majority of my life sometimes is, is doing things that are difficult because that makes me feel as though I'm having forward momentum. So I think people out there who shouldn't be, I think I wrongly chased the more euphoric version of happiness, which is just like walking around with like sunshine at all times when like, no matter what, and like the reality is that's not going to happen. Um, and it actually does lead to pretty well about you know, my experience in therapy and stuff like that. Yeah. So I started, I talked about this in the podcast, but I started going to therapy like three or three or so years ago because I just needed a sounding board of someone to help me with a lot of the things that I had going on, whether it was like the amount of work that I was doing at the time that I started going, it was like just after, you know, the scandal had, you know, kind of been surfaced and by coincidence meets luck that kind of rocket shift shift into more popularity and got more of an international attention set of eyes overnight. So I was just dealing with a lot of stress from trying to coach, trying to work a lot, trying to run a business, um, trying to work through some like family stuff, trying to work through some like really tough uh, endings to personal dating relationships that didn't go well. And so there's just a lot going on. But what I learned from therapy and what I still try to work on quite a bit is, is the tenants here is that it's oftentimes what we think about that is the source of our discomfort and emotional pain, I'll just be honest, and not so much the actual events themselves. And I think that was probably the biggest thing that I've taken from therapy is learning how to confront your emotions, but also confront some of those thoughts and confront some of the distortions that I think are, are in those. And we can share those more, but I think that has been something really, really helpful for me is that you, you aren't your thoughts and you aren't your, you know, your automatic emotions. Like there's a, there's an aspect to them that can be, you know, confronted and dis, dis, dismantled a little bit and be like, is that really accurate? You know, like, is that yeah. is it really accurate that my coworker thinks I'm a piece of crap and doesn't like me and is angry at me all the time? Is it really, you know, I would like friends and all that stuff too. I was like, is it really that this person doesn't like me and that 
they really hate me like probably not that's probably just the things that are running through my head as a narrative because my emotions are driving the bus and not my logic so yeah that's my little intro but i'm happy to share more well and the reason i, I bring cognitive behavioral therapy up is it is loosely based off a of stoic practice so what you have is an ancient philosophy that helped influence uh, a very contemporary therapy model um, that's used almost as standard of practice. I've, I've seen it referred to that a few times in, in some of the papers for um, a plethora of issues. Um, it, Stoicism is not the only thing that was one of the founding points, but you have Buddhism, Taoism, existentialism, which we, we won't go into any of those. I don't know. Some of your audience members just went, <laughs> I know this it, a lot of philosophy, but this is my favorite stuff. So I like to get into it. Um, Cause what you said, you're not your thoughts and what will happen. And you'll, you'll find this in the Stoics is they'll say that, you know, something bad will happen to you and it's bad. It's tragic. It's hard to live through that moment, but then you'll relive it uh, a thousand times over and over and over again. You're not reliving the action. You're not reliving the thing. You're reliving it in your brain, right? Like you're thinking it and making it happen to you over and over again. And one of the things that CPT will try to do is try to get you to recognize the fact that it's over, it's past, you're in the present right now, but you're bringing all of this baggage with you. And your your mind is going to a place that's causing you discomfort. And it's it's recognizing that your own thoughts are what's creating the 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 feeling of unhappiness right now. And, and that's why you're frustrated or that's why you're angry is because you're dwelling on something that makes you frustrated or, and unhappy. And in this particular moment, there's really no reason to think that way. You know, like kind of going back to the emotion things. And I, I do want to preface that I'm not, I'm not a therapist. So like, I, I don't have a tremendous amount of knowledge with CBT. So I'm going to kind of keep it where I, I know, which is, I know Stoic philosophy really well, but like going back to the emotions in the moment when it happens, there's nothing wrong with being sad when something bad happens to you. There's nothing wrong with being mad in the moment, right? Like the Stoics would say that madness is like, or anger is temporary insanity. You know, like you're not thinking rationally in that moment, but it's like, it's going to happen. There's going to be things that make you angry. And if you get upset with yourself for feeling an emotion, well, you're being irrational again, because now you're upset that you're upset, right? And you just create a loop. And recognizing those loops is part of the process of helping your your mind kind of be a little bit less toxic to yourself, mm -hmm. if that makes any sense. I know, I know it, it's a little bit complicated, but I, I've had, I've experienced this a lot in my life where like, I'll get upset and then I'll be upset that I'm upset, which will make me more upset. And then I'll get more upset. And it's just, it spirals until you got to kind of slap yourself and be like, Hey, relax. It's fine. You know, like yeah. go, go sit down, have a cup of coffee and like chill for a bit and, and stop doing this to yourself. Because in a lot of ways, we can be our own worst enemies. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree. And I can, again, preface this with I'm not a therapist. And I'm lucky to have a lot of friends who are and have experiences in there. But I can kind of hopefully maybe translate this into the the implications of CBT. So yeah, the, when you think about the two pieces of it that have resonated the most with me is like, obviously, the cognitive part is what we are, are talking about right now, which is the challenging the thought patterns, challenging the some of the distortions, like David Burns has a pretty famous, and I could probably actually bring this list up. I was, uh, I had it up and I was looking at it before the podcast, but um, essentially looking at the different ways that, you know, maybe your brain is being, 
you know, overly emotional. So for people who are not watching, but listening, there's like this list of like, you know, 10 types of categories they use, uh, commonly within, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy. So all or nothing thinking overgeneralization, mental filter, disqualifying the positive, um, jumping to conclusions, trying to like, think you can read someone's thoughts or that, you know, what somebody thinks about you, magnification of catastrophizing, um, emotional reasoning, should statements, label and mislabeling and personalization. So we'll put the links to this article in the show notes, but essentially it's like a way to look at what some of your thoughts maybe are in these buckets for and understand there's a probably a more rational way to think about that, or that there's really no evidence to support you know, the way you're thinking about something. So that's more the cognitive piece of it. The behavioral piece of it for me has always been about lifestyle and about choices and about daily habits and stuff. It's like, okay, it's, it's great to think your way out of a problem and have it rationally make sense, but what are you doing about it? Right. And that for me, whether it was inside the gym or outside the gym, it's like, what are the actionable things that I can do each day to make something different? Right. If you want a different outcome tomorrow, you have to do something different today. And so it's like, okay, is it, on personal life type stuff? Is it like sleeping and exercising and like, you know, going to therapy and like talking with friends or whatever else it is. But in the gym for coaching, it's like, if you're frustrated that someone, you know, doesn't uh, like behave, you know, or isn't getting a skill or isn't doing well in their competitions, or you feel like the team is not really where you'd like it to be. Well, are you going to keep doing the exact same drills and the exact same things you've been doing for the last five years? Are you going to admit that maybe you need help and reach out to someone. And that's what I was, that's when I met Nick, right? I was like looking for someone to help kind of understand more technical nuances. I'm like, well, who's like really experienced and can help me? Like, well, Nick knows a lot about gymnastics, Yurchenkos and things like that. So maybe I should get him. And it was like strength conditioning or flexibility or talking with, you know, personal development type people and getting help from my friends who have dealt with kids who have misbehaved before. It was like, clearly what I'm not, what I'm doing is not working. So it's like having the behavioral steps to follow those cognitive distortions. And then on a personal level, it was like I said, lifestyle stuff is more so dealing with emotions and figuring out that like, Hey, maybe it's not a great idea to have un unhealthy coping mechanisms, like going out and eating a bunch of crappy food or drinking with friends when I'm upset or having a tough night, or I'm like feeling really stressed out or frustrated. Like maybe I should actually do something more productive. And that's kind of where the famous tagline of like virtue over vices came from in the mm -hmm. podcast, which is trying to lead your lifestyle in a way that's the best trying to be the best version of yourself and trying to have an ideal life you'd like to have for yourself. And, you know, drinking a ton or not sleeping a knot or eating like crap is probably not the best way to go about that to deal with your emotions. And so for me, those are the biggest things that I pulled out of therapy and that helps me. And that I think that the model kind of is maybe resonating with people for. I, I, I've always found it very interesting how many coaches I know who are very hard on their athletes about what their athletes will put in their bodies. But then, you know, as soon as Friday rolls around, Saturday morning practice. The coach is really slow today. I don't know. He, he looks sleepy. His eyes are red. <laughs> You're just like, and you know, I'm guilty of this. We, we've all sure you know, made bad That's decisions good. on a Friday when we're supposed to coach in the morning, but it it is important, right? Because it the kids are going to look to you, whether you want them to or not, they are going to see you as a role model. And I know it, on our last podcast, I talked a lot about how important it is to recognize the limitations of that role. Like you don't want to present yourself as somebody who's never wrong. You don't want to present yourself as somebody who should always be emulated and idolized at all times, but the kids are going to look at you that way. And if you're not taking care of yourself, it's, it's very unfair for you to expect the athletes to take care of themselves. Mm. You know, it's like, if I'm going to ask you to do all of this work, um, I should be willing to put in a little myself. Like I'm, 
every time a, a parent will come up to me and be like, oh, he's gotten so much better. He got his back handspring because of you. I'm always, hold on. <laughs> yeah, he did it. Like, yeah. I, I just told him what to do. Like, and I didn't really tell him that much. I was like, I don't know, put your arms behind you. And then he did it and he, he landed it. So it's like, he's the one who did all the work, but you know, I did a little bit. So I think that if we're going to expect so much from these kids, we got to be able to expect a little bit from ourselves, at mm. least the bare minimum effort. And so it is important to take care of yourself. It is important to recognize these problems with yourself. If therapy is the, the thing that you need, then, you know, you should look into it. Um, but also just recognizing these patterns in yourself. It's like, well, maybe I am drinking too much before I go in in the morning, or maybe I'm going out too much with friends, or maybe I'm not eating healthy enough, not getting enough sleep. And then mm. once you start to realize that about yourself, you'll see if you start making a positive change in your life, you'll see it in your coaching. Mm. Um, because you'll be more willing to be, I don't know, at least in my experience, and this is just me, you know, um, you'll be more willing to learn. You'll be a little bit less insecure. Like I remember when I was young and just started coaching, you know, I, I felt like I had to be right all of the time. Like I, I always had to know the correct answer. I had to know the right, the right correction to give. And I spent a lot of time trying to learn everything that I could about like the technical side of it. And, now it's like, oh, we'll just try it, see if it works. If it works, it doesn't. We'll we'll just try something else. And it's helped me a lot because I can have conversations with my athletes now. It's like it's not that anybody's wrong. It's just that this isn't working. Like this drill's not working. Mm -hmm. So what are we going to do different? Well, the drill's not wrong. The drill's how you teach the skill. But like in this case, it's not working. So we just find a new drill. Um, and when you're not emotionally attached to these things, it, it's easy, you know, but if you kind of connect that with like your ego or the way you're coaching and like, you have to always be right. Well, if somebody says this drill isn't working, well, they're saying you're wrong. So now you have a personal attack, right? But it's not, they're just like, Hey, the drill's not working. So it, if you're not attached to it, it's easy. Like, all right, we'll, we'll just do a new drill. But if you're being personally attacked, you have to then defend the drill be like, no, actually it is working. You're just doing it wrong. And now you've got this back and forth where it doesn't need to be one. Yeah, um, I agree. And I can give two good examples, a smaller one, and then I'll give one bigger one, which I don't know if I've shared in the podcast yet or it's recent, but um, for, for, I distinctly remember like it was like 2016 or so, maybe it was in that like tumultuous time. I have no idea, but I was sitting on a block and I was watching athletes do rope climbs and I was just like, faster, go, like, come on, come on. And I was like, wait a minute. I was like, I'm literally sitting on my butt drinking like tea or something like that, yelling at other people to work out. And I was like, what a, what a hypocrite. I'm like such a piece of crap, you know? And it yeah. was that, um, cause I, I work on my own, but nothing nearly as, you know, some of the stuff they're doing. And I started doing strength with the athletes once per week. And I started testing the workouts before, um, I did like, especially metabolic workouts. Like some of the stuff we do is pretty tough. And, um, I remember jumping into a workout that I programmed and I got like, it was like five rounds or something. And I, we got to like three, and I was like, dude, I am dying right now. I'm like looking down the line of like all the other girls, like hands and knees. Like, I'm like, it should not be this hard, you know, this early. Like one girl's almost having a panic attack. Like, and I was like, you know, old me would have been standing on the sideline just being like, figure it out. Like, you know, this is what it takes, like blah, blah, blah. And then, but I'm like literally rolling around on the floor dying. I'm like, guys, we're going to cut one of these rounds off. This is like way too hard. Like this is way, we're going to be here till like 930 at night doing this. So it gives me more empathy, right? It gives me more empathy with the athletes. 
it also builds a lot of trust uh, and cultural kind of like fabric with the athletes when they look down the line and see you equally as tired or they just see you come in after a workout or come in well rested or, you know, not chowing down on chips in the middle of practice, like all those little things add up. Um, and then the technique one that you mentioned is another, I, I could definitely say that one is there were times when I was like, the reason you don't have a Yurchenko is because I'm not good at teaching a Yurchenko. Like this is not an effort thing. This is not a like equipment thing. This is like that. I'm clearly not understanding how to really implement this. Well, that's when I talked to Nick and Nick were like, what about like all these like technical performance things? Do you know these? And I was like, Oh, well, this is awkward. <laughs> like, no, no, actually, no, I had no idea. <laughs> I didn't really know that at all. No, but, you're um, supposed to do that. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, with that in mind, I, one of the bigger pictures that I can say now is, um, I've, I maybe have danced around on the podcast, but I actually took a step back from coaching three months ago in the summer because, I was not well. It was just too much for me to to coach and run a business that was growing. I'm grateful for that. But like, it was just me working like 80, 90 hours a week. And the athletes saw that I was miserable and that I was tired and that I was burning the candle. I was like, this is unfair to the athletes. This is unfair to myself. So it was heartbreaking to have to stop coaching. I love coaching and I'm probably going to go back to it. But for right now, I just need a different approach because it's just not healthy for me and it's not safe for them. And I actually told them, I was like, listen, the biggest reason I'm doing this guys is because I need to take care of myself. The second biggest reason is because you deserve better. You deserve someone who's coaching full effort all the time, nonstop, and is not going to be distracted by 30 other things. And they completely understood. Of course, there were tears. Of course, there was like, you know, sadness and stuff. And I still pop in the gym and help here once in a while with like some consulting stuff or education stuff. But um, they understood. And I was like, I teach and I preach to you guys that you have to take care of yourself and you have to put yourself first. And if, you know, you want to do a different sport or you want to not do as high level competitive gymnastics because it's too much, then we support you. But I'm such a hypocrite here to say that I'm, you know, not doing it. And so for some people that's coaching less, some people that's coaching a different level, some people that's changing gyms, some people that's stopping altogether, like I did for a little bit of a, a short break in the summer. But, you know, I had to kind of eat my own dog food, so to speak. And I think that's another example of where only because of the self-work that I did and some of this therapy work that I come to that realization. My therapist was like, yo, I think there's a clearly glaring, obvious problem here. And I was like, yeah, I know, <laughs> you know, like, you know, but yeah, that's just a, another thought process I had before we move on. You know, you always hate it and love it when somebody points out exactly what's wrong with you. You're like, oh, <laughs> you got me. Yeah, yeah, nope, you got me. Um, Confirmed. <laughs> frustrating, but always enlightening. Um, but I, I think it's important a little bit now to kind of talk about what happens when a lot of this stuff isn't being done in the gym. Yeah. And yeah. when coaches are getting a little bit out of hand because – there is that elephant in the room, as you put it a little earlier, when it comes to gymnastics, stereotypically and in practice, that there are coaches that aren't really interested in trying to reevaluate the way things have been done or really look at the culture. They're, they're kind of just interested in doing what they were taught or what was done to them. And we've been seeing you know, more and more stories coming out that are really quite sad and really horrific of the way coaches interact with their athletes. Um, like one of the stories that I had been thinking is I, I, I like to chat with a lot of athletes that I meet like older ones. Like, uh, Cause I've worked with the NAIGC team, a lot at temple with the one at Penn as well. And then I've worked with the varsity Penn team. And then I worked a little bit right now, not so much with the temple men's team. Our schedules don't really line up, but I like to chat with them about what their experiences were while they were gymnasts and you know how they interacted with their coaches and just hear their stories from the sport. And I was actually going to 
talk with your audience and say that if if you don't do this regularly, um, I would highly recommend it because it is one of the most enlightening ways to coach because you're going to hear a lot of what nots to do's. Um, recently, I talked with an athlete. She had retired like five years before going to school, but she was telling me that when she was a gymnast, her coach wouldn't let them talk during practice. And if they did speak, he he had them put their face up against the wall for talking. Jeez. And this was just the way that they, they did practice. And that's the way she, they did gymnastics. So when she came to our gym and she saw the way we're coaching and the boys are like jumping all over the place and like, we're trying to get them off the trampoline. She's like, this is so different. And she liked it because like the kids looked like they were having fun. And, you know, there was some pretty big gymnastics being done, but she's such a different environment from what she had come from. And I was very fortunate that she, she went into more detail and she explained to me like kind of what that exposure to that level of trauma did to her. And um, she developed seizures from it and she wasn't able to drive for like a whole year because she didn't know she might have a seizure. And that's something that I wanted to share with your audience a little bit. I know it's becoming a little bit more talked about, but I wanted to talk a little bit about the ACE study, mm. which had come out in 98. It's called the uh, Adverse Childhood Experience. And essentially, it's... I'm pulling up while you're talking. I have to preface this again, because I'm not a medical professional. I, I don't deal with this. I'm just going to talk about it a little bit in passing. So if I mess something up, you know, don't send too many emails, maybe like one, <laughs> not too many. Um, essentially, it, it was a, a one to 10 scale of category of harm that a child would have experienced when they're younger. Um, there's been a lot of work done on it. The original one, they just they just asked you a question like, have you ever experienced this? Did you ever experience this? And I, I won't go into super detail about what the questions are, but they're all different forms of trauma that you might have experienced as a child. And what they found from the study was that if you had four or more ACEs, which is if you scored four or higher on the 10-point scale, you had a four to 12-fold increase in health risks of alcoholism, drug abuse, depression, or suicide attempts. And the most shocking point was you had a one and a half or 1.4 to 1.6 fold increase with heart disease, cancer, uh, chronic lung disease, liver disease, and uh, various other forms of physical ailments. Um, I, I discovered the ACE study a little bit through chatting with friends of mine. I think uh, Safe Sport might have covered it in the last course that they had us do. And then I just dove into it and just started listening to like every lecture I could find about it because I found it really, really interesting. And I know when we were talking about it earlier, uh, we both agreed. I think it's probably the most important study that's come out for anybody who's going to work with children ever, probably. Like if, if you're coaching or a teacher or you interact with kids really with anything, like you need to be aware of this study because it's changing our perceptions about the way we interact with kids and the way trauma happens. Um, because one of the things that's on the list, one of the ACEs is emotional harm mm. and repeated emotional harm. We're now seeing evidence that it can cause physical harm, which, which isn't to say that if you yell at your athlete 
they're going to develop cancer. Like that's ridiculous. But mm -hmm. if you put your, your athlete in an environment where they're constantly under stress because they're afraid they're going to get yelled at or they feel like they're not good enough or they feel humiliated, then you're at least giving them one notch on the 10 point scale. And I know you had a study that we were mm -hmm. talking about. Um, yeah, I'll definitely jump in here because I, I think this study and I had read a lot of textbooks that are similarly talking about this stuff is, as you mentioned, it's not like an automatic one-to-one -one ratio is if you have athletes in an environment where they're getting yelled at or they're getting humiliated or there's like psychological warfare about like, you're not good enough or all that kind of stuff that unfortunately there's corners of in, in gymnastics that still exists. It's not like you're going to have someone who's automatically depressed and is automatically, you know, like you said, has, has some physical ailment, but the risk elevates quite a bit. And I think that study is very, um, you know, important, but also I think people sometimes unfortunately instantly go like, Oh, well, that's not like, that's like people who are like abused by their their parents when they're home or those are people who have like witnessed a murder like crazy really really high intense trauma but that low level chronic stress or that low level chronic stuff does make a really big impact too whether we're talking about comments about the way somebody looks and their body image which is a huge one that a lot of friends have told me from women's artistic gymnastics that is a huge uh you know source of their trauma and the source of their problems is people constantly saying they had to lose weight and constantly comparing them to their other teammates or you know, the one that you mentioned too, which is people who were just like constantly getting berated almost because they weren't good enough or stuff like that. But I think the bigger one that also comes up with emotional trauma is neglect is people who are just like disregarded because they're either not the superstar or maybe they have an injury or something like that. So this study that I'll bring up actually, um, Gretchen Kerr, who people who listen to the podcast frequently may remember there were two lectures that I did with gymnastics Canada and Gretchen Kerr and I put together these kind of ideas. And this was a study. So this came out in 2021, September, 2021. And she mentioned this study inside of the presentation, but I wanted to mention it again because it brings it kind of closer to home. So this was a study where they surveyed, uh, 995 athletes from across gymnastics, Canada, national team level athletes. Okay. So about a thousand people uh, who had retired in the last 10 years. So this is recent. This is the last decade. This is not like the sixties. This is not like Eastern block, some random gym in the middle of Russia. This is like literally close to home. So what they essentially did is they looked at uh, on a um, survey. They asked if they ever had reports of in their, in their career of different types of, of harm. So um, psychological harm, um, sexual harm, physical harm, uh, or emotional harm. And essentially they went through these and I'll just kind of get to the highlight section here, but they, out of all the athletes who, um, reported, there was 5% of them who were gymnasts. So that's what 50, 50 to 60 of them were gymnasts. So there are people who are directly in our, our line of thinking. And the results were that a lot of them had a significant reporting of, um, some sort of, uh, harm, right? So, um, going down here to the definitions of what these were. So I'll go percentages wise first. So the most uh, common form of harmful behavior was psychological as athletes reported experienced an average of 2.6 psychologically harmful behaviors of a possible nine. Okay. Second athletes reported experiencing an average of 3.4 neglectful behaviors in a possible out of a possible seven. And there were far fewer sexual harmful behaviors and far fewer uh, physically harmful behaviors were experienced. But the percentages up here when they look at it, right? So the highest proportion of athletes was 68.8%, which is 551 people reported at least one neglectful behavior followed by 62, 60.2%, uh, 478 athletes reporting at least one psychologically harmful behavior 
Uh, at least one sexually harmful behavior is reported by 20.5%, uh, 163. And then um, at least one physically harmful behavior is reported by 14.3%. And I know instantly, maybe some people's minds jump to the worst case scenario of like a coach straight up abusing an athlete. But I want to highlight down here what these things were defined as. Okay, so for psychological harm, that was uh, being shouted at in an angry or critical manner, being gossiped about, having lies told about the individual, being put down, being embarrassed or humiliated, or being intentionally ignored in response to a poor performance or criticized as a person. So that's psychological harm, okay? Sexual harm was not so much maybe some of the horror stories you would think about, but it was just like talking about sexually inappropriate content in the gym or making comments or jokes or things like that. Um, there were instances of sexual inappropriate touching, but it was very minor. Psycholog or physical harm was not beating the athlete. It was punishing them with conditioning, which is something we talked extensively about in our last podcast was someone who misbehaves or someone who doesn't perform well, and you make them go do rope climbs and you make them do, you know, pushups until they, you know, serve their time or whatever it should be. Mm -hmm. Um, so these are not like, you know, in a neglect up here, I miss is, uh, report uh, as being ignored or neglected during an injured uh, during being injured or exhausted, followed by neg neglect of the career or the educational needs generally being ignored. So kind of when you reframe it as what this study showed is that, you know, it's people who are being ignored when they're injured, they're off in the corner doing their own thing. It's people being punished by conditioning. It's yelling at the athletes for not doing a skill right or yelling because they're not getting something right. These do count and are categorized as significant negative, you know, emotional harm or psychological harm for the athlete. And so mm -hmm. I just want to show that study because it's very recent. It's very close to home and it has people in gymnastics and it was like, obviously, you know, a very, a variety of athletes, but we're talking about things that I think, unfortunately people in their gut know, like listening to this podcast right now, just like you said, when somebody brings up something they know to be true about themselves is like all of us listening to this podcast know can think of a time when they were like, Ooh, yeah, either like I might've danced that line too close and it's a mistake that I made and I have to you know pay for it. Or I've seen that happen out at meets, out at gyms, out at clinics, out at camps. So my long-winded explanation of that study, but I wanted to share that in, in line with yours. Well, and it, these these things are always complicated. I know like whenever you start bringing up the numbers and statistics, like my eyes were even kind of rolling back a little bit. And then I was like, <laughs> no, listen, it's important. Um, and because it, it is. And we've, I don't want to say we've all, but like I've definitely made those mistakes, you know, and it, it not even on purpose, you know, like you got a kid who comes in and he's hurt and he's got a broken arm and like, all right, well, you can't really do anything. Like, here's the conditioning list. Mm. Like, and like you, you try to go over and talk with him. You try to like, make sure that he feels like he's being like, he's involved, but it's like, at the same time, you've got like three guys over there doing something. You got somebody over there doing something. So it's like, you got so much else going on that it, you're not trying to you're not trying to make that mistake and mm -hmm. and this is one of the things that i always i i try to hammer home and i think you do too is like co coaches aren't superhumans like we're not able to to do everything right we're going to make mistakes you're going to accidentally do something wrong mm -hmm. that's not necessarily the problem if you can create an environment where you have a healthy relationship with your athlete and you can talk with them like they're not going to look at you and think oh he's neglecting me you know mm -hmm. like if they know that I'm here if they need me and they can talk to me and I'm not going to bite their head off. They're not going to look over and see me coaching somebody else and be like, Oh, he doesn't care about me. He only cares about him. And that's something that I think every coach struggles with because like every gym you, you have the, the athletes that are good. You have the athletes that are working on it and you know, they're, they're, it's very easy to get a perception that you only care about the good ones. I try very hard and not always successfully to make sure that everybody feels like, I'm working with everyone 
as as evenly as I can. And like I said, I'm not always successful. You know, kids will still say stuff. Um, and you try to do better if it comes up. And when you hear these studies, it's absolutely heartbreaking. But it becomes more heartbreaking when you pair it with something like the ACE study, where you could be potentially causing harm that could last these kids' entire lives. I know the eating disorder one is the one that's most talked about. And mm. that's what I'll hear the most when I talk to not just athletes from women's artistic, but men's artistic too. It's I actually try to talk about it a little bit more because I feel like on the guy's side of things, it's still a little taboo to talk about that. Absolutely. Um, like it's more acceptable, I think, for the girl athletes, or at least they're I don't want to say they feel more comfortable, but they're it's a more open discussion. The guy athletes, they, they don't know how to talk about it. And it's hard to bring it up to your coach. I try as hard as I can to let them come to me. Like I won't go to them. A lot of times I'll recognize it and then I'll go over and be like, Hey, if you're having an issue and you feel like talking, I'm here. If you don't feel like talking about it, that's fine too. But it's like, I kind of, I'm noticing what's going on and very rarely will they talk about it. I don't know if it's me or if it's just the environment, but there's so much about this that you can get wrong on accident mm. that if you're not paying attention and not constantly self-evaluating and constantly trying to learn and get better, you can slip into some really bad habits and those habits aren't just going to affect you. They're going to affect a, a large number of people for potentially the rest of their lives, which is what's so upsetting to me. And when I talk with athletes who, like the one I had shared earlier, who just horror stories from coaching, and then I hear the health issues that they have afterwards, it, it breaks my heart because, you know, gymnastics is my favorite thing. Like, I love this sport. I, I love teaching it. I love working with the kids. I like just seeing what the kids are able to do. Like, I like it when they get a new skill, it doesn't matter what skill it is, if it's a kip or a forward roll, or they do like a full in, you know, and then they're just so excited and you see it in their face and they're so excited. It's like, that's what I want the sport to be is the celebration of overcoming. And so many parts of it have become just fear of failure and just beating down to the point where even high level, incredible athletes who do things that you know, a normal person couldn't even comprehend is, is being done. They feel like they're not good enough or they feel like it was crap or they feel like mm -hmm. they should have done it better. And it's like, there's something about this culture that is sick. There's something in gymnastics that has a disease. And if we're not going to find a way to rip it out or cure it or do whatever is necessary to change it, it's just going to keep infecting the sport. And I think that it's already gone so far and it's become so normalized that, you know, some of the things that we'll talk about that cause trauma is just, you will hear people defend as just being tough coaching. It's like, well, that's what you got to do. You have to do that if you want to have a successful athlete. And it's like, so you have to create lifelong trauma that these kids are going to have to deal with. This, it's not just going to put them in therapy like this can put them in the hospital with physical ailments. 
because you want to go to nationals or because you want to have an Olympic athlete under your belt. So you're going to put them in that kind of environment. And that's what you have to do. And there's no other way to do it. And you will see people who will defend it and be like, yeah, that's what you have to do. That's what it takes. And I've spent a lot of time in the sport trying to reason with these people and trying to have conversations with these people. And I don't think there's a way you can really teach them that this isn't okay. And there comes a moment where it's not about education anymore. There are people in this sport that are perfectly willing to hurt the kids if it means their career moves forward. And if it means that they're going to get accolades and be looked upon as being a good coach. And those people have to go. They need to be removed because we're not going to be able to teach them that that's not okay. Which brings us to a very challenging position because then the question is, how are we going to get these people out of the sport? Mm. I I also want to mention that the other excuse you hear a lot besides just that's what it takes is, well, this is what other sports do. I hear that one quite a bit as well, which is like, look at football. Look at bit like look at basketball. Look at these kids like football coaches screaming and slapping these kids in the helmet, telling them to get off the field and stuff. It's like doesn't mean it's okay. No. <laughs> it doesn't mean it's okay at all. The 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 really technical one, which is very philosophical. I'll give you the technical one, then I'll give you the easy one. Um, the technical one that's a fallacy called the fallacy of relative privation, right? Which is that just because you have a wrong thing. And another wrong thing doesn't make it right. That's the easy one. Everybody knows that two wrongs don't make a right. Um, but a lot of times I'll hear this whenever I start talking about ethics and gymnastics is people will get upset. They're like, oh, you're making the sport look bad. Like we're not the only ones who do the wrong things. Like for the most part, we're good. And then sometimes we're bad. And it's like, well, I'm only talking about the bad stuff. But the example that I like to use for this is just because something's worse, hypothetically, doesn't make the actual thing not bad. So it's like, if you tell your friend, I'm going to come hang out with you tonight, and then you decide, oh, I don't want to do it. I'm just going to not go. Well, I've given him my word, right? So I could lie to my friend and then just not show up. Or I could kill my friend, right? Well, I'm not going to kill him. So that's a lot worse than lying. So I guess I just won't, I'll lie to him and I won't kill him. And now it's good, you know, because I could have done something worse. It's crazy. And everybody knows that's crazy, but that's just the way we'll think about these things sometimes where it's like, I could do something worse now and I'm not. So actually I'm doing something good. No, no, you're doing something bad. And just because somebody else is also doing something bad or somebody else has done something worse, it, it doesn't change what's, what's happening. Mm. Yeah. Very well said. And also on the point of, as we move into this, this conversation about what do we do moving forward is I'd also like to kind of highlight how we've discussed the negative implications on health and on de- there's definitely a lot of research that I've studied on stress, uh, neuroendocrinology on like what chronic low level stress does to like brain changes and like the ability to, to develop more, you know, comprehensive structure of like, you know, kids developing really, really well is dependent on a really good nurturing environment. Plus some obviously parent support and many other things, but I want to highlight that in the same regard, that negative choices, negative behaviors, negative environments can pull somebody downward positive choices, positive environments, positive uh, role modeling can rocket launch somebody upward. And I've seen some people who I, I, you know, they interact with coaches who I like really respect and really think are a foundational, 
you know, someone we should look to for guidance in a positive coaching environment. Kids do an amazing job. They do well, but they go on to become incredible humans. Like, yes, they mm -hmm. obviously have their own, you know, things they deal with, but there are many, many incredible people who are incredible because of their experience in gymnastics. And I think that's the positive spin is that if you're willing to do the work, if you're willing to take the effort on yourself, if you're willing to be a part of the change, that's going to maybe, like you said, push these uh, minority coaches out who are not interacting or even parents too, or people who are on the, on the outskirts who are just toxic for our sport to have. If you can do the work to, to, to try to make the environment better, you're going to help foster an, an incredible environment for someone to grow up in and learn the sport in. And it's going to probably have massive positive repercussions on their life. And so there is a very positive, optimistic hope you know, lends to this too, which is doing the harder thing when it's the right thing to do and continuing to work on it will make very, very significant positive impacts on the, on the kids' lives of those you work with. So it's not all, you know, doom and gloom. It can be a positive upward trajectory as well, but there's some people that really got to go. Like you said, like it's really yeah. brutal. I, I, I like the way that you put that actually, because I, I think, and I'll make this mistake sometimes when I think about it is you, you kind of think about it like, it's like a neutral ground, right? Like you can go down or you can go up or if you, you just go neutral, right? And a lot of times when you talk about bad coaches who are harming their athletes, you think of removing them as kind of putting you into a neutral category, right? Like now we're just moving forward. We're not really going anywhere. Um, I think a lot of times at gyms, they see it. There is a conflict, right? Especially if they're good at teaching the sport, right? Like one of the things that I used to do when I did my little ethics talk is I asked, you know, what is a good coach? Is it somebody who's good at teaching or is it somebody who's good at creating a healthy environment, right? Like gymnastics will reward somebody who's very good at teaching, right? Like if, if their athletes are good and they go and they win a lot of medals, we're going to see that as they're a good coach. Well, how, how do they do that? Like, what was the gym life like? Well, what about a coach who's very good at creating a healthy environment for their athletes where they're developing and becoming better people? But they're not so good at teaching your chancos, you know, like they, I don't know. I need to, I don't know the technical stuff. Was well, that guy not a good coach? Cause to me, I would say that guy's probably better, but it's like, you know, they're your chancos aren't good when they go to meets, but their athletes want to go in. They want to work hard. They want to do their, their stuff. And they're not going to be traumatized later on in life where they look back and they're like, my coach was you know, evil. So it is a positive. It's not a neutral removing a bad person. Who's going to harm the athletes doesn't just put you into a category. It, it, it will elevate the sport and it will elevate the environment and for another reason that you didn't mention, but just kind of thought of, because they're also not going to be in the sport anymore to teach it their way. Mm. And I remember when I was younger and I was learning how to coach, and, and this is a challenge I think everybody will relate to. It's very hard to become good at teaching this sport. Like you can't go to school for it. Like you have to find an environment where you can learn it's hard to find a gym that really has a solid grasp of everything. Like there's plenty of really good gyms. And if you're fortunate enough to get into one of those gyms, you can learn from really talented people, but it's also kind of hard even when you're there. Cause like, maybe you're just teaching classes. They don't really have time for you. Like you express interest. Like we don't really need you right now. Like we just need you to go do the preschool. It's hard to become good at teaching the sport. It's hard to find replacements when you have someone who's good at teaching the sport. Mm. So you have coaches who, are very willing to cut corners and create unhealthy environments so that their athletes perform well at meets. They'll start downloading this into the next generation and they will teach the next generation that this is how you coach. 
Um, and I've experienced it. I, I think I shared a little bit last time I was on the podcast where I had a coach when I was very young who told me like, they have to be more afraid of you than of the mm. skill, right. you know, like, and he would threaten his kids. Like, I'm not going to let you compete at the level you want to compete at unless you do the skill right now. Right. And I had to learn why he was wrong. I mean, I kind of knew he was wrong right at the beginning, but like I had to go off and find my reasons for it. It's hard to learn. It's harder to learn when you have people like this teaching this kind of thing to the next generation. And for me, I think education is the way forward. Hmm. I think a lot of these older coaches, not even older coaches, but just coaches with these mindsets are harming the sport in ways that I don't think has even really been talked about yet. The level and magnitude of damage that has been done to our sport because of people with these mindsets that the next generation is going to have to learn not to tolerate it. The next generation of coaches is going to have to learn to recognize it. And the next generation of coaches is going to have to learn that they're going to use the same kind of manipulative tactics on you that they're going to use on the kids. And you have to understand that if you put yourself in a situation where you're confronting it, and you're trying to stop it. And we'll use as a hypothetical, like, you know, for a fact, what this coach is doing is wrong. If you step in and try to stop it, you're going to make yourself a target. And how do you as a person, how do you as a coach deal with that situation where, I mean, you could put your job on the line, you could put your reputation on the line, you can put all of these things, your physical, emotional health on the line because you feel so strongly about what this coach is doing. It's not something you can tell people they have to do, but it's something so important that I think that if you're going to be a coach, you need to do it when the opportunity comes up. And it's not going to be fun. It's going to suck. It's going to be miserable. But for the long-term health of our sport and the long-term health of our athletes, we need people that are willing to step in. And we need people that are willing to confront it when they see it and recognize it when they see it. Mm. Well said. And I think going back to that concept of kind of moving not only from a negative to a neutral, but also to a positive is that rightfully said, you know, when you have these situations that are uncomfortable conversations, or you do have to kind of, you know, formally go about, you know, calling somebody out, it sucks, man. It's like, you have to accept the discomfort and the uncertainty that's going to come with that. Like, cause it really is. That's one of the worst feelings is like, you don't really know, like uncertainty wise, like what's going to happen if I try to, you know, speak up about this or go to someone like my, like you said, my job, like a lot of people have their their financial and their livelihood tied to, you know, their gym and their coaching and that maybe it's their interaction they have. And they're really scared to speak up about that because they're worried about, you know, getting, you know, some sort of repercussion. And like you said, like the emotional and social weight sometimes is so heavy when someone, you know, speaks up and now they have to become everyone's gossiping about them and talking about them and all that kind of stuff. That's really, really uncomfortable and kind of going full circle about why you need support systems and you need healthy coping, coping mechanisms to, and people to help you with that. But at the same time, when you move through that process of whether it's self-development and you're trying to improve yourself to be a better example of a, someone in a sport, or you do take the action and kind of call out someone like, Hey, that's not the way you talk to a kid or that's not appropriate. You move yourself exponentially from a negative to a positive 
in, in multiple, multiple uh, bounds, right? You don't just move from like, oh, that was the right thing to do. I'm going to move on with my life. You move into this position of like, I feel like I'm actively pursuing the best version of myself and trying to do a positive effort, not just idly standing by and saying, well, not my problem, you know, because I think I said this on another podcast, but looking away is still a choice, you know, yeah. like there's one thing to do something actively about it or to not be a part of something negative, but just standing there and kind of like, mm, there, there it goes again, just screaming at the kids again, you know, there he goes, just, you know, imploding and yelling at everyone about it. Like that is still a choice not to, to bring up some confrontation about that. Well, and kind of going back again, when we talked about the Stoics, you don't get to decide what kind of environment you're in, right? Like you don't get to decide how the other coaches interact with the kids. You don't get to decide what your gym environment is like. You're not in control of that. The only thing you're in control of is what you do when mm. you're when you're in the situation. So when we talk about the emotional side of it, this is going to feel really bad. You're not going to have an easy time dealing with it. If you decide to put yourself out there and you decide to put your foot down, you are going to feel like shit the whole time. And that's where when I talk about the Stoics comes in, because that is part of the challenge of life is the emotional side of doing the right thing. I want to dispel the myth that people report for attention or they do it to make themselves look good. I don't think that's ever the case because you're not going to get a pat on the back and like a handshake and like, thank you for finally standing up. Most of the time, you're not going to get the closure that you think you want or you think you deserve, right? Like there's not going to be a congratulations at the end of it. It's going to be a long, crappy process. And you probably won't see the benefits from it immediately. But what you won't see is the harm that's going to continue if you don't do it. And if you don't step in. And I think it's hard for people sometimes to visualize that by me not doing something and me not stepping in, I'm going to help create the harm that could affect somebody for the rest of their lives. And it's, like I said, it sucks. It's not easy. But that's where we are. Um, yeah, I, I, I want to follow that up because I, I didn't think about this till right now. But we had a situation where someone... Um, was put in a leadership position very quickly in our facility, um, different gym. And within a couple of months, we all realized this is not going well. This person is not a great leader. They're short tempered. They're making the wrong decisions. And it was like for two months, everybody was walking on eggshells because nobody wanted to tell our program director, like, you got to go, man. Like, this is not good. He's not helping. It's not treating the kids. Well, it wasn't even a, a, an abusive situation. It was just like a lack of complete leadership ability. And it was just like, you could see everybody imploding and crumbling for it. I mean, like we had to work so hard to kind of grapple with ourselves because this person was very deeply rooted in our network and was friends with a lot of people, but it's like, this is just not good. He's got to go, man. And so back to the, again, the piece of stoicism of controlling versus not control is like, yes, I accepted that it was going to suck and it was going to be uncomfortable to go through this process for a couple months. But that's, you know, when you accept that and you say, this is in my control is to, to do something about it, to try to bring it up. 
Like, yes, it's uncomfortable, but at least I'm doing everything I can in my control to influence a positive outcome and to try to make these things go well and to try to change. I'm not just idly setting by and becoming more and more miserable at work because this person is not doing their job and is making the kids miserable. So you have to kind of rest your hat on that. What's within my control versus not is like, well, what's in my control is, you know, when someone, I think about this example a lot, it's like when you get back to someone's like not deliberately trying to be mean, but if someone comes to you with like their back hurts, right. And you're just like, Hmm, okay, let's talk about this. Let's investigate this. Let's try to see if we can work with a medical provider to give you a plan when you're here. So you're not just sitting in the corner and communicate like that's a very different response that's in your control to help the athletes and not be neglectful and not be harmful versus like, Oh God, whatever. Like, okay, fine. Go do your strength. Like that's an instance where you've kind of put yourself down the path of what might be psychologically harmful for the athlete versus like, Oh, they care about me. Let's actually do it. So whether you're talking about that example at a small level, like you said, when you're not trying to, you know, make that kid in a cast, not be, you know, part of the group or it's something as big as a coach in your gym is a monster and doesn't, (laughs) doesn't deserve to be working with kids. Like there's a a big spectrum here. Yeah. And if you want to be a good coach, not technically a teaching, like you, you have to learn how to recognize that in yourself. So you don't make those mistakes, but then you you need to be able to recognize it in the other coaches around you. Mm. And it's important to recognize that environment plays a more important role than any technical knowledge you'll have. Your kids will get better if you make a better environment for them. And it doesn't matter what drills you're doing. It doesn't matter what your gymnastics background is like. If they hate being there and they don't want to do what you want them to do, it doesn't matter. Like they will not be as successful as they would doing the same drills. If they want to be good, right. right? Like they want to do it. Um, kind of going back to another point where we talked about like things that are in your head and unhelpful thought processes, kind of what you talked about and I talked about a little bit was when you see a coach and you want to step out, like, you know, it's wrong. But you're like, well, my livelihood, right? I could lose my job. What I would ask you is, is that why you got into coaching? Did you get into coaching to make a lot of money? Because there's a I'm bad choice. <laughs> there's, a, there's a bad choice. You, you, there's a lot of ways to make money. There's a lot of jobs you can have. Did you get into coaching so that a bunch of guys or a bunch of ladies at a competition would look over and be like, wow, they really know what they're doing, you know? does it really hurt you that bad that there's people in a little room somewhere that you're not in who will talk smack about you? A lot of the problems that you will have to deal with, and I don't want to make it sound like they're not hard to deal with because they will suck, but they will be in your head, right? It doesn't matter what the other coaches think about you. If you honestly feel like someone is abusing a child and you report them, or you go to your boss, or you confront them to try to stop that abuse. And people use that as a method to attack you. They're part of the problem. And if you recognize that, it's not going to hurt as bad. It's still going to hurt, but it's not going to hurt as badly. And the reassurance that you get is the one you you've put very well is that positive, right? Like you are part of the process of change. You are moving the sport in the direction it needs to go to survive. And those thoughts that you have that like get in your head about, I could lose my job. I could do all this. this, They're just thoughts. They're just in your head. Maybe it happens. Maybe you lose your job. You will find another one. You will find a way to make it work. It will not be the end of your life. It's going to keep going. 
but you always have the choice to stand up and do the right thing and confront it and deal with the consequences or walk away and just let it keep happening. And it is going to keep happening until somebody or many people step up and start stopping it when they see it. And unfortunately right now, I don't think it's happening as much as it, it should be happening, mm. but I'm hopeful that it'll change. Yeah. And last thought before we move on to like some constructive solutions here, but threading this all together is that's back to CBT is one of the biggest things that I think I've talked with people about is like that trail of thought of catastrophizing of like you just said that, like, if I say something, all my coworkers will gossip about me. Everybody will hate me. I'll uh, get in trouble. I'll lose my job. If I don't have a job, I'll, I'll get kicked out of my house. If I get kicked out of my house, I won't be able to raise my family. If I, you know, I'm, and I'll be miserable. I'll feel like shit for the rest of my life. Like, that's a pretty aggressive timeline and downward spiral of what you jump from, which is speaking up about somebody who's maybe acting inappropriately to I'm going to be miserable as shit for the rest of my life because I have no job and nowhere to live. Like that's a pretty, that's a classic catastrophizing loop. So like, that's where the role of these things comes into play is one is understanding and identifying those things from a cognitive point of view about what maybe is inaccurate with that. But two is on the behavioral side is, is actually setting up an advance on thinking clearly rationally about like, okay, what's going to happen? What's the worst case scenario if this does? And what's the plan of action I can build? What's the lattice or structure I can build in advance of this? What can I do for healthy support systems to try to, you know, friends that are outside the gym that can help me cope with this, or, you know, like you said, therapist or family or friends, but also realistically, okay, if this is worst case scenario and I lose my job, what, what's next? Like, what do I have to do next to set up the next step of moving forward? Like, do I have to live a slightly less lavish lifestyle? Do I have to think about talking to friends about other jobs? Like you have to kind of be proactive in, in terms of like what you're worried about. And that goes anywhere from when you have a really hard conversation with a friend about something in the gym, that's not anywhere related to abuse all the way to something that's much more serious. So, yeah. Uh, and, and everything you said is so important for somebody to hear, because I've been in similar situations in my own life you you feel very alone you know like it, it can turn into like me versus the world mm. that's a bad place to get yourself into because mm. it's it's never that it's never you versus the world um it's you versus this little group of people that you're dealing with who are trying to make it out that you are the problem um kind of going back to what i had said a little earlier which is you got to remember that if you're confronting an abusive person normally they're pretty good at manipulating people and they're pretty good at manipulating emotions. And, you know, gaslighting is a common tactic that you're going to see used in gymnastics with the kids, but it's, it's, it's used against the coaches too. And you're going to want to, it, it's kind of like what I said earlier with the kids, like it's easier if you expect it, right? Like if you're expecting them to try to manipulate you and you're expecting them to gossip about you, you're expecting them to try to gaslight you, you're going to be prepared for it. It's not you versus the world. I would say that the vast majority of the gymnastics community will be on your side. They're just not going to be in the room. Mm. And when you talk with the people in the community, not necessarily coaches, a lot of coaches are still very challenging with these topics, but the athletes, and this is why I encourage people like talk to the older athletes who have come out of the sport recently, like, the 21 year old, the 25 year olds, like talk with them and hear about their experiences. Because when you step in and you stop it, or you talk about how you coach in a way specifically to avoid it, 
they will thank you and they will tell you how important it is to them to see someone in the sport trying to do the right thing, right? You don't even have to do the right thing. You just have to try. And that's where your support is in the community and where it exists today. You're not alone. You're not doing this by yourself. Everyone in the sport who wants it to get better has your back. We can't really do anything to help you, but you can at least have the thought that it's not you versus the world. Mm. Yeah. And, and with that in mind, I think I would like to shift and kind of end the podcast on maybe some constructive ways to go about maybe change and stuff like that. And I think there's probably two, two categories that we maybe talked about are better to frame this. in. I think the first category, which I can share extensive support and help in, cause we went through this. It was, um, not necessarily things on the legal line of abuse, but just being in an environment like just as toxic, you know, where yeah. it's just people are mean, <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. bullying and gossips and people are assholes. You know, it's not so much that someone's being like, frankly, illegally wrong, but you're just like the coaches can feel it. The athletes can feel it. The parents can feel the bad vibe, stuff like that. So I, I have openly said on the podcast that I feel as though I was actually one of those people who was the source of the problem. You know, I was very, very corrosive in our, um, gym for those first couple of years because of, you know, the way that I viewed myself, I was insecure back to all the way back away through, uh, some of the personal life stuff that I had was like, I 100% had disordered eating and body image issues from my career in gymnastics that bled through to me overworking and working out and really like being crappy with my diet and binging. And that was 100% reason why I was kind of an asshole in the gym because I just was an unhealthy. I was unhealthy from my, you know, my past trauma and my past issues. So like when you go back to the the male side of the sport being, you know, not as prevalent, like that was 100% a part of the reason why I was being an awful coach because I was not healthy. I was not well at the time. So all the way back to that full circle was like, I wasn't illegally harming kids. I was just a douchebag. Let's be frank. Mm -hmm. I was just an asshole. Right. And I was just had a short fuse. I was snippy. I was yelling. I wouldn't listen to other people's opinions. I was gossiping behind people's back. So like in that situation, I had people who did this to me, these steps that I'll talk about my best friend, Eva, she's been on the podcast. She has helped me enormously kind of be more transformative in my coaching, but she helped me with these kind of steps on a part of it. And it never escalated to the point where we had to like, you know, talk to somebody above and get me fired. But, um, this was a lot of the things where we're in our gym were helpful. And I've been really fortunate. This is, I mean, it's in the least egotistical way. I do a lot of consulting work with clubs here in the States and around the world and stuff like that. And these are the same kind of steps and things that are constructive to them too. So there's five things that I would recommend for someone who's, if you feel like you're in this situation and you're like, the world is caving in on you. The first is that you have to try to approach all problems, all conflicts with I am also involved in this. Like, what's the role that I play to have some sort of not only empathy, but perspective? Because chances are, if there's a conflict, there's some sort of two ways to tangle, whether it's coach to athlete, coach to coach, coach to parent, parent to medical provider, coach to medical provider. There's always this dance back and forth. So try to uh, approach things with a small, you know, what is my role to play in an empathetic point of view? Because I think sometimes it's hard for people, like you said, to get attacked and be like not defensive on the, on the outlet. So taking a step back and having a conversation with that individual in private, not in the middle of the gym, you know, not when you're in the heat of the moment, but that's very, very important. If that doesn't work and it's like, okay, there's still an issue going on. You have to try to outline the facts of the situation, not the distortions, not the assumptions, not the, you know, gossip of the situation of like, oh, well, she said this, I think, but the actual concrete facts of like this person yelled at this athlete 
you know, and punish them with conditioning. We don't agree with that in our culture. Like that's a factual thing that happened. And you can bring that to a discussion with like a leader or somebody who's maybe in the higher up. So that's the second piece. The third is trying to use that chain of leadership to kind of escalate problems when they don't get resolved. So say you have a disagreement or an issue with one of your coaches. Can you bring that to the head team coach and have a private meeting with the three of you and talk about what happened? If that person is maybe the head coach, can you bring it to the gym owner? If the person who is, you know, the, the main issue is actually the head gym owner or the head team coach. I always tell people, if you work through all the way up to that, unless you want to go to like the state or the international or the national level, which is a choice you can make, you just have to say like, yo, is this a good fit for me? Like, is this worth my livelihood, my health, my wellness, my misery to deal with this person and feel like I'm constantly getting you know stepped on? And if that doesn't work, I think it's always a combination of, like you said, finding another job, finding another gym, but also there's that strength and numbers component, which might help too. Like if you approach that person and say like, hey, me and the seven coaches who work for you, do not like working for you. Like you're, you're aggressive. You don't listen to our ideas. You berate us. It's cruel. Like if six people come to that person, they're like, yeah, it must be all six of your fault. It's like, okay, time to go. <laughs> you know, it's like, that's time to move out of that gym. If, if the problem is everyone always coming to you and is saying like, this is like, you know, something you're doing and you blame it on every other single person, you know, that might be a, a you thing and not them because I said it on a podcast before, but hurt people hurt people, right? Some people yeah. who are so deep in the well um, and can't see past their own emotions or are so blinded by, you know, their aspirations of the gym or money or the team or whatever. They sometimes, like you said, are, are unconsolable in the moment and that time in their life. And they're there. You can't educate them. You can't think your way out of that problem. And you got to be like, hey, good riddance. I wish you the best, but I'm going to go. And I've done that to other gyms too. I've bounced because I was like, this does not feel good inside. So those would be my pieces of advice, not to be long-winded, but I just want to give people some things that are actually like, okay, doom and gloom on this podcast, but what the hell do I do? <laughs> yeah. Well, and it, it, it's hard to talk about this stuff in a way that isn't depressing because it, it, it is, um, but we're not talking about it to become depressed. We're talking about it to, as you said, elevate it and make it more positive. And so it's like, you got to deal with the really bad stuff to point out what it is and where it is and how to get out of it. Um, uh, one point that I want to make off of that is the importance of the little things. Mm. Um, you know, like right now, there's a lot of very high profile people, with very large scandals and large traumas. And, you know, there was a lot of very evil things done to a lot of kids. And we focus a lot of our time and energy and, and thought power on, on evaluating that and looking at that. They were kind of blinded by the little things. You know, it's like what we've talked about a lot today is like little things that you'll find at pretty much every gym. You know, like it's not rare to find a coach who's going to yell and scream at the kids. I've seen it happen at meets in front of like everybody. You know, it's not rare to see a coach cuss somebody. I got cussed out at a meet, you know. One of the guys was walking on the floor while my guy's competing. And I asked his coach, like, hey, can you keep your guy off the equipment while my guy's going? And the coach told me to go myself. Ooh. So I'm like, oh, it's everywhere. You will find it. And the little things add up and build up. When we're, when we're trying to elevate it and not, not to get depressing again, because I know I keep doing it. Recognizing the little things and trying to fix those. It's a lot easier than fixing the really big things. But by fixing mm -hmm. the, the little, little tiny problems in the sport, it will remove the normalization of abuse that exists because right now gymnastics, there's a lot of abuse that's just normalized. It's just, well, that's how we do it here. Well, it shouldn't be, you shouldn't do it like that. Mm. And, so, 
on the little things I want to jump in there because I've resisted from sharing this story, but I feel like it's ample to do it here. Sometimes the little things are not adding things, but subtracting things. So spending less time with people. And I'm not going to say the country because it's not this country of people who are in America. Um, it's I don't want to say the level. I'll just say you that it was a very, very, you know, prestigious high level situation. So the person was very, very, very high level. And the person's uh, son or daughter, we'll keep it even more general, was entering into the elitist of the elite system in this country. And she said, I don't understand how some people are allowed to work with kids and be that that aggressive and yell and scream and push. Like, why is this still not being dealt with? And I was on a consult call with this person, a strength coach, their medical provider, everybody involved. And she said, and this almost hit me like at a, at a brick level for emotions. She was like, I feel like I'm sending my daughter into a meat grinder because of, you know, what happens at some of these events when she's trying to make this super duper high level team. And it was really hard for me to hear because instantly my, my response was like, mm. you know, it was like, yeah, I've heard that a lot, you know? And so in that situation, what I advised them was, Hey, this one person that you're talking about at this place just try to limit as much possible interaction with you, Kim, as you can with them whenever you can and spend the time with, I know the other people at those situations are great people. I know there's a lot of great coaches there. There's a lot of really positive, really amazing people. And you should try to spend all your time with them and try to be in their presence and try to learn the right way to work with these athletes at a high level. And at the same time, if there are things that you are uncomfortable with that you know you feel are worth reporting, you should report it. You should talk to the people appropriately about it and not let it slide. But in the short term, because like you said, sometimes these are not immediate. You speak up and it immediately changes. You should just counsel your son or daughter to be like, as much as you possibly can, stay away. Stay away from that person. And hopefully something is done about it. But take the action to report it. That's in your control. But also take the action to limit your interactions as much as possible. And I say that because twofold is it's real. And I know it's hard. And I know it happens. It's existing today. But also... Um, you should tell those people that there are amazing, wonderful, positive examples to follow. And I think as a community, along with, like you said, ripping out the cancer, we need to also shine a light on the very positive, very incredible people who are, cause these people aren't flashy. They're not like, you know, jumping in the spotlight. They're not saying I'm so great. Look at all these, but, but they're just doing the grind. They're doing the work. And those people deserve our effort, our attention, our praise, our, Hey, let's figure out what this person did to make this person reach a college scholarship or a national team, but still not have 47 injuries and 99 people who are miserable. Like let's dig into what they're doing that makes them great as people. And then let's try to emulate those. So I want to share that story because it's important, but at the same time, maybe juggle that back and forth. Yeah. I, I think I, I, I like that you shared it and it, it is powerful. And you know, a lot of ways I've been at camps for elite athletes and a meat grinder is a good def definition. You know, I remember this is a short one, but like I was working with a kid on mushroom and he was just so tired. It was like day three of this camp. He'd done about 23 hours of training in those three days, you know, and it like it was very clear. He couldn't do what he was trying to do because he was just exhausted, you know, yeah. and I'm just look at the kid. I'm like, look, man, you're fine. You're not doing anything wrong. Like, go get some water and go sit down. You're just tired. You need a break. And the, the guy running the camp comes up to me, goes, Tom, don't tell the kids they're tired. I was like, what? He's like, don't tell them they're tired. Cause if you tell them they're tired, then they're going to think they're tired. And I was like, no, 
they're tired because they're tired. <laughs> like they've been working so long. Like it's okay that they're tired. And like, that was the moment where I realized I don't want to coach elite gymnastics because I don't want to do that. Like, not to say that this is how we do it, but it's like the way that it's done and the, the expectation of like, and that kid was a nine-year-old. The expectation of him is like crazy, right? He did like, more gymnastics in three days than he does per week. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like, then he's not allowed to be tired after that, you know? Like, it, it's crazy to, to expect that. What I like most about your story, though, and I, I don't know if you noticed you had said this, but when you talk about reporting, you said it's under your control. Because what I want to kind of go back a little bit again is things that we're in control of and things we're not in control of. We're not in control of the way that the other coaches interact with the athletes. We're not in the way we're not in control of the way your boss responds when you bring it up. We're not in the way of the way we're not in control of the way the parents respond. We're not in the way we're not in control of the way the athletes are going to respond. There are scenarios where somebody's doing something wrong and you try to speak up and they're just so liked by the community that they're like, oh well. Like, they're fine. Uh, we like coach so-and-so. We think he's cool. You're kind of a jerk, though. Even though the other coach is not cool and what they're doing isn't okay. You know, maybe you are a jerk, but you're trying to do something right. But you're not in control of what will happen to that coach. But you can file a report. You can do that. You can't control the outcome of the report. But if you feel so strongly that what these people are doing is wrong and you have facts and you can point to it and say, this was wrong, this was wrong, this was wrong, you need to be able to recognize that it is wrong. And I think a hard thing for a lot of coaches, and, and I've struggled with this, is sometimes people that we like are part of the problem. Like you like that coach, you respect that coach, but then you see them do things where you're like, I don't know about that it still has to be reported. Even if it's somebody that you like, if it's bad enough, I shouldn't say if it's bad enough, if it if it's something that should be reported for, you still have to do it. You don't have to do it, you should do it. And that's the only thing you're really in control of is your actions. And if you've tried to go to your boss or you've tried to confront the person and you have no other option, it's gonna be hard to file the report it's going to be hard to deal with it. It might not go anywhere, but that's what you're in control of. And I think it's important that people recognize that. Well said. I will, well said. Absolutely. And I think the last point that I want to share, and then I'll kind of give you the, the floor to share anything else you want. But I think the other thing that always comes up too is sometimes as we move to this pendulum swing of, you know, 20 years ago where this was not even in the conversation or it was very much brushed under the rug to this side of the pendulum, which is, you know, people are almost mocking, you know, reporting and mocking, you know, what's going on about, you know, like, Oh, oh they flirt, you know, like people are like, so, you know, I don't even know the term. It's, it's ridiculous, but, um, essentially they're, they're, they're making a show out of it. And they're saying that like, Oh God, everything we do now, like we can't even coach people anymore because of like this and that. And it's like, well, if that's your viewpoint, I think we need some serious, <laughs> some serious moments of self-reflection because, I, in my opinion, I've always, I've said this in the podcast and I thought about this, but I think we deserve to be on the hot plate right now, you know, as a, as a sport, as a whole, because, you know, even though we may not be that, you know, I think it's tiny fractional percent of the people who are truly monsters and aren't really doing the right thing. I think we all still have the shared responsibility and the shared burden to be pushing the train forward in a positive direction. And so 
I think we we kind of need to be in the, in the hot plate right now. We need to be under some pressure, and if that means there's a momentary swing where we're kind of on the other side, where we're tr- trying to overhear and overlearn and overlisten and overeducate ourselves, and that means that we have success results that don't go you know through the moon like they always have, because now we're actually not tolerating someone who's getting destroyed in the process of trying to say like, okay, what's the best possible outcome score wise. And if it doesn't work out, we break someone, we'll just find somebody else. Like if that's what it takes to get back on an even keeled footing of, we feel okay about the things we're doing and the way we interact with kids, then I find that is as necessary and appropriate to the cost of, of what needs to happen to move forward in the sport. So that's just my two cents is I would, I would, I would try to part people with, again, the message that there actually is a lot of great in the sport. There's a lot of great coaches, great people, great, you know, awesome gyms. There's a lot of people at the highest level of the most elite, 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 elite Olympic level who are doing it well and are doing it in a way that's safe and healthy. But at the same time, we still need to, you know, take it upon ourselves, not just wait for some national body or some organization to fix it all for us. We very much need to, through your daily choices, every single day, those small little things every single day, which is how do you talk to a kid when they say their back hurts or when someone's misbehaving and you're getting frustrated, do you check your emotions and have a rational conversation with yourself before you snap? Or do you punish kids with conditioning or do you find another way to do it? Those are the things that I think if everybody took on one to two things per day and made a better difference and then worked on themselves, we'd have a much positive outcome. Yeah, I agree with all of that. And I think it was very well spoken. Um, I think that the last thought that I think I could leave your audience with and what's helped me most as a coach is to be able to recognize that a lot of what you're going to learn as you're coming into the sport is going to be toxic. Like there, you're going to learn this from people who've existed in the sport for so long, or people who have come in with their own preconceived notions of what it should be. And the most educated, the most educating and enlightened things that have influenced my coaching and what I do is, is outside of the gymnastics world. Um, so one of the reasons why we talked a lot about stoicism is like, it's very much influenced the way I coach and you, you don't have to go and read philosophy or study, you know, like meditations of Marcus Aurelius to become a better coach. But an example that I've been using a lot is like, one of the things that's changed the way I talk with like, at least the younger kids a lot is you just watch episodes of Mr. Rogers, you know, it's like, watch the way he interacts with the kids and the way he talks with them or like, listen to an interview of him talking about the way he presented himself on the screen, because you see such a different perspective than you will ever find in the gymnastics community where he's like, well, some children don't have parents, you know, cause something might've happened or they might, you know, home. So I, I don't say, is your mom and dad there? I'll say, do you have an, an adult in your life or is, is the person who's like responsible for you? Or he, he wouldn't say that he, he said it very articulately, but there was so much forethought going mm-hmm. into the way he interacted and the mm-hmm. thought process he had. And I, I have a little thought experiment that I thought I'd give your, your audience, ask yourself right now, could a guy like Mr. Rogers and the way he interacts with kids, could he exist in elite gymnastics? Do you think he'd be accepted by the community? Cause I don't think he would. I think the other coaches would think that he's too soft and he's too, too easygoing and he's not going to push them hard. And I think that says a lot about the com- community. We're here working with kids and we think we have to be drill sergeants. And then you see one of the most influential educators of children 
And we're like, ah, oh, that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. So look to outside sources, you know, maybe his philosophy, maybe it's Mr. Rogers, but like get out of the bubble of gymnastics a little bit. And I think you'll be surprised with the results you'll find. I agree. And I, you just sparked this because of what Gretchen gave an example in her lecture. She said, imagine if we were teaching someone, I think maybe you might've said this too in our last podcast, but she was like, imagine if you're an educator and you're teaching some kid how to read and he wasn't getting the cursive right. And you just screamed at him and you're like, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. Go do push-ups because you couldn't get your yeah, cursive yeah. right. You know, like we would look at that person as a teacher and be like, you're awful. Yeah. <laughs> you're terrible. But then that's accepted in gymnastics sometimes. So yeah, standard of practice. Standard. Yeah, exactly. All right, man. Well, this was another monster episode. I think the same thing's going to happen. People are going to get a lot of great value out of it. They're going to think they're going to be challenged, which is awesome. Um, I dare say it, but where can people contact you? Oh God. Oh God. <laughs> email if you don't want. <laughs> uh, uh, you can, you can put my email on the profile. Um, I, I won't say it because it's just acronyms. It's just my initials in USAG. Um, but yeah, contacting me, that's that's always a process. <laughs> yeah. If you want to stay away and we'll just field the comments for you in the sections below, we can do that too. <laughs> no, no, I'm no. Sure no it's fine. Be- yeah, we, we, we can share my email. Okay. Um, we'll put that up in the show notes then below. But uh, I thank you for your time. I thank you for yeah. the thought. I thank you for all the ongoing discussion. And uh, yeah, we'll see how this one goes out too. And thank you so much for having me. As always, it's always a pleasure. I'm always pleasantly surprised with where the conversation goes. I always have an idea in my head and it always comes out a little bit better than what I was thinking. So I, I really enjoy the conversation. And more importantly, I hope that if I could achieve one thing from this podcast, I can get one person who's struggling with this to feel like and realize they're not alone. Mm. They have this the whole backing of the community. We're all supporting them. But there's going to be some tough roads for people to go down if the sport's really going to get better. And we need brave and courageous people who are willing to lead the way and are willing to take that L for themselves so that the community itself gets a little bit stronger. And I hope that this podcast at least help somebody feel that way. Well said. Thanks so much, Tom. All right. Have a good one. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to that episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it and got a lot of value out of it. I just want to let you know before we sign off here that a couple things we'd love for you to do. So one is please just make sure that you rate and review the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher, wherever you're listening, because that really does help the episode grow quite a bit. And then second, if you really enjoyed this episode, we would love if you left us a review as well and told us what you liked about it. You know, what information was useful, what things were not useful, would you like to know more about, what guests you want to have on in the future. And then also as you kind of go about your day, if you found something really useful, just toss it up on social media. We love to hear from people on Instagram or Twitter or, you know, all the different websites that they're using for social media. Facebook is great too. But yeah, let us know what you like, because honestly, the podcast comes from people who just tell us what they're finding useful. And that's how we create the next set of content. So yeah, tag us in the podcast or tag us online, whatever you're doing it and uh, let us know what you think. Thanks.